Well, good morning. Hope you're good. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Now we know what the Holy Spirit looks like. So, um, but uh, glad you're here. Excited about today. Um, and uh, just continuing looking at who is God. Uh, we've been asking this question the last few weeks and looking at different aspects. Obviously, we could spend the rest of our lives um, studying this. And this is really what we do every week anyway as we discover more of who God is that we can come to know him more. We want to learn more about God, but we want that learning to lead to knowing. Um, if it doesn't lead to knowing him, then just knowing about him uh, doesn't do uh, what God's heart is for us. And so we've been talking about that. Um, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit and specifically the last few weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit as the spirit of grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of grace. And so we've been looking at that and I gave you a definition of grace um, that I hope is starting to stick with you as you've heard it each week. Um, the definition of grace we've been using is more than just unmerited favor. It's more than God's unconditional love. Um, grace is really, it's God's desire and ability to do for us, in us, and through us what we cannot do ourselves. So he does for us through Jesus. He's made us uh, right with him by faith in Christ. He's given us peace with God and brought us into a relationship with him. Then he does in us what we cannot do. He, he, he begins to make us whole and reshape us into the image of Christ. And um, as he's made us a new creation, we begin to grow into that image. And then he does through us what we cannot do. He uses us in ways that, um, that they're ways that we could not accomplish on our own. And last week specifically, we looked at who is God in terms of he's a God of greater things. And we looked at John chapter 14 where Jesus said that whoever believes in him would do what he had been doing, but would do even greater things than what he had done. And that seems kind of crazy, right? Because Jesus did pretty incredible stuff. Anybody that can predict their death and resurrection, then die and raise from the dead, that's a pretty good miracle. I don't know if we can top that, right? But, but the thing that we can see in this is that God's not necessarily, and Jesus was not necessarily saying in this, that we're going to do greater miracles as in the all factor. What he's saying, though, is that it's going to be more widespread. It's going to be greater in quantity. Why? Because Jesus, as he ministered on earth, was in one place at one time um, with the people he was there with. But now that the Spirit has come and the Spirit lives inside of us, we're called to carry out Jesus' work in the world. And so um, we see then that God begins to do greater things through us as we carry out the ministry of Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at this thought, this, the God of greater things and specifically the, the spirit of grace doing greater things through us than what we could do on our own. And we're going to do this in Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to begin. So you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever you're wanting to read the scripture with. Um, you can get to Acts chapter 6. Before we read Acts 6, though, I want to set up a little bit of what's going on. Um, in Acts chapter 1 um, as we get into this. So Acts chapter 1, when we see this, we see that um, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is also writing Acts. As he's writing this, um, he's, he's wanting us to see that in Luke, he wrote about Jesus' life. In uh, Acts, he begins to write about what happened after Jesus has died, been resurrected, and ascended to heaven. He sends back the Holy Spirit. And so Luke even says this in Acts chapter 1 that he wrote in his first book to a man by the name of Theophilus what Jesus began to do. As we come to Acts, he's going to write about what Jesus continued to do by sending the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so we're going to be looking at that. Um, you go through Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives them this commission, which we looked at several weeks ago, is the same thing that God commissioned Adam and Eve and the first people to do, which is basically uh, to fill the earth with the glory of his image. Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and they'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this message and this, this uh, recreation is going to go around the world. Um, we see them receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. 
Um, the power of God comes in upon them and in them. They preach a message, uh, or Peter preaches a message. 3,000 people come to faith. We go through, the Spirit is continuing to do things, um, and we get to Acts chapter 6, and we're about to pick up there where the Spirit is moving and the church is growing, okay? Um, this is why I'm horrible at announcements. Because I get up here and I'm so focused on the message, I forget to tell you everything they told me to tell you. All right? So I'm going to back up. So just pretend like you heard that. Now let's keep that. Let's don't lose that. Now I'm going to kind of rewind. All right? So you saw the kids video, right? <laughs> well, we'd love to have you serve in Connection Kids. For the last 10 years, this has been a huge need. It's also really important. And I say that joke, but it is. It's very important. We have a great opportunity uh, for us to pour into these children, right? So let's don't forget that like I did, all right? Um, but God, God's given us an opportunity to pour into these children's lives. One, it's a need. Two, it's extremely important. And three, look, one of the hardest things, especially for us who have children that are that age, sometimes the hardest thing is to minister to our own children, right? To, to pour into their lives. Sometimes we wonder, how do I do that? What's that like? Well, it's a great training ground, you know? You get to go in there. You begin to teach children how to, how to understand Scripture, how to know who God is, um, what God's plan for their life is. You begin to teach these things. And look at it this way. It's great practice. You get to practice on someone else's child, and then if it works, you go home and do it with your own, right? If it doesn't, don't. But it's, it is important, and it's an opportunity um, and a training ground for you to be able to uh, one, raise up these children and be a part of their lives, but learn yourself too. And so if you don't have children, man, what an opportunity. If you've raised children, look, if you went back and did it again, I'm sure you'd do it a little different. I would. So go help and, and be a part of that if that's something that God's putting on your heart. it um, be a great opportunity for you. Um, second thing that I completely forgot, uh, March 10th, this is important too. We're going to have the meeting where we're going to begin to go through some spiritual gifts and begin to look at how God's wired us and how he's gifted us in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to be talking about that again today and, and leading up to the 10th next Sunday. Um, and I want you to see again how important this is. But if you're going to come to that meeting on the 10th, you don't have to do this if you come, but it'll be beneficial for you. We'd love for you to sign up um, at the next steps table. And, and the reason that we want to do this, we want to get your email because we want to send you a couple of things to do before you come to that meeting. It'll be helpful. I really think this will be an aha moment for some of you when you begin to realize why you're passionate about some things, not passionate about others, why you enjoy some things, why you don't enjoy others, and, and, and help you understand more about how God's made you and now how he's gifted you through the Spirit. And so I hope you'll be a part of that. Go sign up for that. If you want to help in kids, go sign up out there as well at the Next Step table. Basically, if you want to know anything, go to the Next Steps table. Um, tonight, we'll be worshiping and praying again at 6. I believe, really and truly, this is one of the most important things we're doing, if not the most important thing. So I hope that you'll enjoy that or come in and join us in that. I hope you enjoy it too, but mostly join us. Um, so, Acts chapter 6. Getting back to that, um, looking at the Holy Spirit continuing the work of Jesus through the church, the, the book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's more the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church. And so we're going to read chapter 6, and then we'll pray and jump in. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so let me explain a little of what's happening so you can understand the scripture. The church is growing. It's growing like crazy. One of the things that God has, has always called his people to do is to care for widows. Um, in that day especially, they had very little way to care for themselves. And so the church has taken this responsibility. The problem is you have some Hellenistic Jews, um, Jewish widows, who they come from more of a Greek culture, okay? Um, more of a Greek culture. Then you've got these Hebraic Jews um, that come from more of a traditional Jewish culture. 
And so what you've got are two different cultures. Well, what's happening now is these Hebraic Jews, the ones from the more traditional Jewish-type culture, they're being taken care of, but these um, Hellenistic, more of a Greek background, they come in, they feel like they're not getting or either they're not getting what um, the Hebraic Jews or Hellenistic Hebraic, man, I'm like trying to get that right all morning. But the Hebraic Jews are feeling like Um, or they're taking care of the Hellenistic Jews, not. So what you're seeing is the church is growing. It's growing like crazy. But there's this issue that's arisen as the church has grown that there's the possibility of a division taking place right in the church, that there's about to be two churches. And so this is a big issue. It's bigger than what we would probably just read as we're going through the book of Acts. When we begin to understand the backstory of it, this is a big deal. The church is about to become disunified. There's about to be a division. People are starting to point fingers. There's grumbling. There's complaining. Wow, it sounds very familiar. But anyway, this is what's happening in the church. It says, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait wait on tables. Here's another thing, guys. I want to point this out to you on a surface level. You read that verse and you could easily begin to look at it and say, well, the apostles thought they were too good to wait on tables. That's not it at all. The the issue here is that the apostles realized that we have been called and purposed to preach the gospel. If we stop preaching the gospel, then ultimately um, we, one, will be in disobedience to what God has called and gifted us to do, and two, the church is going to decline. And so in no way are they sliding people by saying, you go wait tables, we're going to preach the word. We're going to see more of this in just a minute. It was extremely important that both happen. And so they say, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So it's not just grabbing anybody. They're they're saying, get people who are full of the spirit, who've been given wisdom by the spirit. They say, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. One of the greatest miracles in all of scripture. The whole church was pleased. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip Procornus. Procornus, there's no N at the end. Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So in other words, they set them apart for this task to do this work of caring for the widows. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And listen, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So I want you to see there was great things. The God of greater things is doing greater things through the church. The church is growing. People are being converted. People are coming into the body. But an issue arises that threatens to split the church and cause the church to kind of cease doing what God wanted it to do. Instead of it causing a crisis, though, the crisis is diverted and the church continues to grow, even to the point that a number of priests became obedient to the faith. So these Jewish priests, they're becoming obedient to the faith. They're coming to faith in Christ. Now listen to this. Note that there were two men mentioned as as two of the seven, um, Stephen and Philip, in the beginning of this. We're going to look at their lives a little bit more. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So first thing they do with Stephen, they come and try to argue with him, trying to tell him, look, you're wrong because of this. But the spirit of God has given him this wisdom, has given him this um, boldness to be able to speak this truth. And they realize we're not going to get him this way. So then it says in verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. He's gonna give a little more detail in this. So what do they do then? They go and most likely by bribery, they get these people who come in and they begin to say, Stephen's blaspheming against God. Um, He's doing this. So this is, you know, attack number two kind of against Stephen. 
Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, kind of like the ruling council of that day, the religious rulers. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. So this holy place, they're, they're, they're saying, look, he's speaking against the temple they're speaking, he's speaking against the temple. Remember, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the temple was so important to the Jews because it was a symbol that God was with them. The one true God was among them. So one thing they're saying he's speaking against is the temple. The other thing they say he's speaking against is the law. The law being the law given by Moses. Um, and this was so important to them. Why? Because it was in fulfilling the law, these rules, these things that God had given them that they would obtain right relationship. It was given not so they could be made right with God. It was given to show them you're not going to be made right through the law, pointing them to the need for a Savior who is Jesus who came to fulfill the law. But basically what he's, they're saying here as they're attacking Stephen is they're saying he's trying to destroy the two most precious things to us in our Jewish culture and faith. He's saying he's trying to destroy the temple and he's trying to take away the law. And so this is blasphemous. It was the temple of God. It's the word of God. So he's literally speaking against God is what they're trying to say. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Do you guys remember... We talked several weeks ago and remember when Moses would go to the tent of meeting and he would come out and his face was glowing and he put the veil over his face. You remember that? Well, it's really awesome to see that when they looked at Stephen, these are Jewish people who were saying the temple, the presence of God, uh, which was the tent of meeting before they built the temple and, and the law, which was the law of God. They're saying this is so important. What they're forgetting though, is that when Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God when Moses was given the law, the very one that was given the law and the things that they held most dear. When he was in the presence of God, his face would glow, his face would shine. And as they're looking at this man and they're ridiculing and attacking and about to kill him, they look at him and it says his face shine like the face of an angel. It's like God is saying to them, look, just as I approved of Moses and the meeting with him as a friend just as I approved of the law that was given to him so I approve of the, the law or the, the, the message that I've given that Stephen is proclaiming and so he's wanting to see this that Jesus came and, and it no longer the temple in a building is in Christ that we meet with God it's no longer law and rules that make us right it's in Christ because Jesus fulfilled the law and rules and so we have been given relationship with God. So now that I preach that message, let's pray, we'll preach one more. All right. God, I thank you for your work in our hearts. Help us to see, God, what you're doing. God, open our eyes to see who you are more clearly. Give us clarity, God, about our experiences in this world. And uh, God, just everything that we've seen and heard, God, it's, it's clouded our, our vision. It's, it's made things unclear, God. Would you, through your word, give us great clarity? Help us to see you more, understand you more, know you better. And God, give us clarity of purpose as we grow into the church you want us to be. And God, give us influence across the globe um, with all your, your people that, God, your work can be done uh, just as you initially planned, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a lot of you have probably been around for a while and you've probably heard me talk about how before I went into full-time ministry, I worked in the roofing business for, it was about 10 years. Um, and I, when I worked in the roofing business, it was a pretty tough business. Um, one thing was I, I bid work and did stuff like that, but I was also, a lot of times I was on jobs putting the work in place. And so when you're in the roofing business, you know, in South Georgia, um, it is hot during the summer. You know what I'm saying? I've heard people say this before. It'll be like March. It's 80 degrees. They're like, if it's this hot now, what's it going to be like in July? I'm like, it's going to be hot. It's been hot in July since, you know, whenever. And so we don't have to guess at that. It's, it's going to be hot. 
Um, and, and we found that out to be true in the roofing business where we'd be on roofs. So one reason that the roofing business was tough is because the conditions you worked in. If you're in construction, you kind of know that, that whatever the conditions are, you don't change them, you work in them. And, and so the conditions were tough. Yesterday, um, me and, and one of my sons were riding through town. And as we're going through downtown, he looks up and he goes, man, I'd hate to be the person that put the roof on that building. I was like, yeah, it was hard. And so... He was like, you did that? I was like, well, I was one of the ones who did that. And uh, so it's kind of funny. We got to talking about it, and I was telling him about the job, and the job was where um, someone else did the, there's some metal panels, but where I was working was it was basically walled in on all four sides with big walls. And, and in the middle, we were putting down an asphalt roof. I know you probably don't care about any of this, but um, we're putting down an asphalt roof. And when you put asphalt on the roof, um, it comes out at about 400 degrees, okay? So it's extremely hot. That day is in the middle of the summer. It was probably at least 120 up on that roof. And so um, we're up there, 120 coming down, 400 coming up. It was miserable. Um, at one of the hottest times I've ever been in my life was when, during the time we were doing that job. Um, so the conditions in the roofing business weren't good. Another thing that was challenging was a lot of times the people you worked with. Um, at that time, we didn't have uh, a lot of, like, I guess you would call them great upstanding citizens. You know what I mean? Um, and, and so worked with a lot of different people, people that not only looked like they might hurt you, but had hurt people. And so, and you're up on a roof with them. And so I'd be, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet up in the air. And I remember they'd always tell me, I worked with one crew in, in particular. I've always liked to think they were joking when they said this. Don't know that they were. But they would tell me a lot of times, they'd say, boss man. And I'm like, oh, me, me, boss man. And so, and they'd say, if you fall off the roof now, I'm going to get your wallet. <laughs> okay. If I fall from up here, I don't think I'm going to care if you get my wallet. So don't hurt me here. Just go ahead and take it. And so they would say things like that. They tell me a lot of times, boss man, we'd be way up in there. They say, boss man, don't be afraid about falling. Why? It ain't the fall that's going to hurt you. It's that sudden stop at the end that's going to get you. That makes me feel a lot better. And so, anyway, so the conditions, the people, it was just kind of a tough job. I tell you that because when I was uh, probably eight years in, I worked for a really good friend of mine. I felt like the Lord led me to start a business. And so for about two years, I ran my own little business. Um, and, and I remember having the opportunity to go into ministry. And I'd known for about six years I was called to ministry. So I remember specifically, though, one day as I finally had an opportunity to go into full-time ministry as a youth pastor, felt like the Lord was leading us there. I was about to step into that. I remember specifically I was um, on South College Street. I just turned on South College at the post office. And this may seem weird to you. This is honest to God truth of what happened. As I turned right uh, to go in front of the post office, the Lord spoke to my heart as clearly as I've ever heard. And he said, sell the business. And see, so my plan had been, I'm going to keep the business because I'm taking a big pay cut to go into ministry, and I don't want to sell the business because I need the money. And so my plan was, I'll just get somebody to run it, and then um, I'll still have that. And so I'm like, I don't want to sell the business. Again, sell the business. I'm like, why do I need to sell the business? And it just clicked in my head, if you don't sell it, you'll go back to it. I'm like, I won't because I'm stubborn. I'm real stubborn. And so I was like, no, I won't. And so anyway, short of long, I did. I put it up for sale. Another miracle is how all that came about. Put it up for sale. 30 days later, had a check. A good friend of mine had bought it, and it just worked out to where that helped to help us as we took the pay cut. Um, and so it worked out really, really well. But I never really thought that there would be a temptation to go back to the roofing business. It had been hard. It was tough, right? I didn't, you know, you have those five days in South Georgia that the weather's nice. It's like 75, 80 degrees, you know, and, but typically it goes from winter to summer, summer to winter, you know, so five days you're like, this ain't so bad. Then you're like, you know, and, and so you get into that and I was like, I'll never want to go back to that, but it didn't take but about two months and my wife can attest to this 
that it became a very popular phrase around our house that I would say, I'll just go back to the roofing business. I know how to do that. And it was then I realized like it, it was God speaking to me and saying that because I can honestly tell you more than likely if I had not sold that business, when it got tough, I would have jumped right back to the, to the other. I knew how to do roofing. I'd been doing it for 10 years. This whole ministry thing, I don't know. And the worst part wasn't the not knowing. The worst part was the attacks that started coming with it. Because you think I'm getting into this. People love me. I love them. It's going to be awesome. We're just going to love and hug. And and it doesn't work that way. And the thing that happened, especially when we started the church, was most of the attacks weren't coming from the outside. They were coming from the inside. It was Christians who were attacking and coming against. And, and there was still temptation. I'm talking five years into planting the church. I'll just go back to roofing. There's still some days I'm like, hmm, it's one of those five days. It'd be nice out there today. And you kind of have those thoughts. And so, man, listen, anytime God begins to move, the enemy comes against And as I was going into ministry, I found that out quickly. It caught me off guard. I didn't realize that ministry was going to be the hardest thing I ever did. When we look at the early church, it's no different. When God began to move so mightily through the church, what happens? The enemy, Satan, comes against them. We see this specifically um, leading up to Acts chapter 6. What happens is Peter begins to preach this message. 3,000 people come to know Christ. God is doing greater things. When Jesus left the earth and ascended to heaven, there were 120 people in the upper room praying. Now that the Spirit has come, Peter preaches a message and the Spirit of God is moving. 3,000 are added to the church in one day. And so when we see this, God is moving in an incredible way. But then Satan begins to move against the church. We see this happen the first way in persecution. The, 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 in Acts chapter 5, just one example, um, Peter and John are arrested. Uh, they're, they're told not to preach the name of Christ anymore. They say, look, you decide what you want to do. We're going to be obedient to God, not to man. And so they end up telling them, well, don't you do that. And then they flog them, they, which is literally where your back is beaten to the point that the skin is pretty much gone. They flog them, but it says they left there rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. That's pretty impressive. What's amazing is when the church has been persecuted throughout history, it has not stopped the church. It has made the church flourish. When the church from the outside has been persecuted, it's kind of like when you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I like to put a lot of peanut butter on there. You know what I mean? And then the most frustrating thing, is it not, or one of the most frustrating, is when you try to put jelly on a piece of white bread. Because it just, some of y'all are nodding. Some of y'all are like, what's he doing? He's stupid. And, but you try to put the jelly and it just tears up the bread. But when you finally get it on there and you push it down, what happens? It kind of oozes out the side. You take it, you know, it's just good, good. And so, so you, you push it down and it kind of squeezes out, it, it, you know, it spreads. And so when we look at this, it's really what's happened with the church. Terrible example. But when it was pushed down, when it's persecuted, pressed, crushed, it just spreads. We've seen it in China. We've seen it all over the world. Anytime the church has been persecuted, the spirit moves. And I believe this, that Satan realizes that. So a big part of the way he attacks the church is not from the outside. It's from the inside. He works against us to get us divided, to get us fighting. In fact, if you look at the next thing in Acts chapter 5, or the very beginning of chapter 5, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Some of y'all have heard of them, right? They come to Peter, and this is the second way that Satan tries to get into the church. They come to Peter, and everybody's bringing money, and they're laying it at the apostles' feet so that they can use it and distribute it to people who are in need in the body. And so they're doing this, and then um, Ananias comes and Peter, he gives Peter the money and he sold some land and basically he's telling them this is all the money. But knowing he kept some of the money. Next thing you know, Peter's like, yeah, you're going to die. Ananias goes out. His wife comes in and Peter says, is this all the money? Oh yeah, that's all the money. Peter's like, well, you're going to die like your husband. Right? How would you like for that to happen on Sunday morning? You drop a check in, right? 
At least, hey, it's not that bad. And so that would clear out quick, right? You going to church? No, I ain't going to church. You hear what happened last week? Um, and so we see this, but what was really going on? This is a new church. This is a brand new church that God is starting to move through. He's, he's got his people and they're moving. The biggest threat in this was not that they weren't given all the money that they were saying they were given. The greatest threat in this was hypocrisy. And I would say this, that I don't know this, but I would say that hypocrisy, it is at least one of the biggest reasons that the church is ineffective today. And and here's the thing, though. Hypocrisy, and you've heard this definition before if you've been here, I'll tell you again. For me, hypocrisy is not that we believe in Jesus, but I'm not perfect. That's not hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. It's not that I'm imperfect and I believe in Jesus. We all know that. Like nobody's ever thought you were perfect. We all are aware of the fact that we're not perfect. I believe in Jesus. That doesn't make us a hypocrite. You hear people all the time, well, I ain't going to church because all them hypocrites. And then some well-meaning Christian says, well, come on, we need one more. That reels them in. And it's like, no, like we shouldn't, this should not be a church of hypocrites. Imperfection doesn't make us a hypocrite. What makes us a hypocrite is when we claim perfection. I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. And that's not a cop out like I can go out and do whatever I want to do. I'm not perfect. And see, here's a truth you need to remember, and I have to remember myself. Transparency kills hypocrisy. But the church has hurt itself by standing there going, look, we've got it all together. How dare you not have it all together? And so Satan comes in, puffs people up with pride. Some of them, they don't even have a relationship with God, but they go to church every Sunday, so they think they're better than somebody else, knowing they're just as jacked up as everybody. But hypocrisy kills the church. And transparency kills hypocrisy. We see Satan coming in and trying to work through this hypocrisy. Yeah, this is who I am. I got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And God's like, no, this is not coming into my church. But the problem is today that we've been taught and trained through this religious system to not show flaws, to not show weaknesses, to not, listen, this is where it's crazy, to not admit what everybody else knows. That we're not perfect. So we're like, yeah, yeah. Everybody's like, that dude's jacked up. And so he comes in first. He's persecuting from the outside. Then he comes in. He's trying to get them through hypocrisy. Now they come to Acts chapter 6. The church is still growing. Great things are happening. It says the number of disciples was increasing. And so what does Satan do next? He comes in and he says, look, I'll just try to distract them and cause division." So what do they do? They start grumbling. They start finger pointing. I know that's never happened in church over carpet or anything like that. But they start finger pointing. They start grumbling. They start arguing. They, they, they get into this place where there's almost a, a division to happen. And you got to understand, when we read these, these seven verses, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. This is huge. Because what's about to happen is a division, a split is going to happen. The church is going to be divided. This young church is going to be divided if something's not done. So they pray and God gives them wisdom. He tells them, find seven men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Find these these men that God, his spirit is in them. And he's he's given them wisdom as to how to to work and how to to do this. And he says, and let them wait the tables. Again, it wasn't um, putting them down or saying it's lesser for them to wait the tables. He's just saying, look, if we're going to do what we're called to do and what God has commanded us to do and called us to and purposed us for, somebody else has got to wait these tables. Now, let me ask you this question. What, What was going to happen if the apostles quit preaching the gospel, if they quit preaching the message? What would happen? The church declines. The church quits growing. 
The God of greater things is not moving through the church the same way. Why? Because he moves through his message. He moves through his word. The spirit of God and through the word that's living and active moves. They're, they're not preaching it. And it declines. What happens? So if they go wait tables and quit preaching, the church declines. But then what happens if they keep preaching and nobody waits the tables? The church splits and it declines. So either way, if they don't step into what God's called them all to step into, then the church ends up declining. The God of greater things is, is hindered by division or hindered because the word's not being preached. It's hindered because, because the body's not being the body. People aren't stepping into their purpose. They're not stepping into their role. They're not stepping into doing what God called them to and gifted them to do. But these seven men said, look, we're full of the spirit. We're full of wisdom. They're like, y'all go wait the tables. So they go wait the tables. Crisis diverted and a catalyst to the church growing. But it took them stepping into what God created them to do and what God had purposed them to do, at least for that season. And church, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see this. One of the greatest hindrances to the church today is that the body's not being the body. There are so many gifted people that aren't stepping into their gifting in the body. There's so many gifted people, listen, and this is true for, for all of us. There's so many gifted people. God has gifted each one of us through the Spirit when we put our faith in Christ. The Spirit comes with the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit begin to work in us and through us. God's gifted the body in, in all these different ways. But we filled our schedule, our calendar, our life so full, we haven't made any room for God to move. So that most of us aren't even conscious of the fact that I'm gifted to do something in the kingdom. It doesn't mean you sell everything and you go into ministry or you sell everything and become a missionary. It might but the thing that it is telling us is I have an important part to play. We've got this whole room full of people who have a part in the kingdom to play. And we've got to figure out what that is. That's part of what the March 10th thing is. Hey, listen, you're not going to walk out. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you. You're not going to walk out on March 10th and, unless the Lord speaks to you and shows you and go, oh, okay, I'm going to go do this. You may. It may confirm something, show you something, whatever. The goal is that we begin to realize I'm gifted and begin to understand that way or how we're gifted to be able to utilize it. It was hard for me to realize this, that there are people in the church who love to do what I hate to do. And so for a long time, I tried to do everything because the things that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to make somebody else do it. So I'm like, I'm just going to do it because, man, I just, I don't, you know, I don't want to make them do it because then they'll be miserable and I don't, I don't want to do that to them. And so I would just try to do it. And then one day I finally realized that there's people who love to do what I don't like to do. There's people who, listen, they love to organize stuff. They love details. I hate details. If I don't have detail people around me, then whatever God puts on my heart never happens. I have to have detail people. We got a guy that works here, John Irvin, lady who works here, Roxanne, deal. They, they, they help me with details. Because if I don't have them, like we'd have a connect group leader dinner without food. It's not a dinner without food. And so you got to have people filling in and, and we're coming together and your strengths help my weaknesses and I can focus on my strengths because you've got my back. You can focus on your strengths because I've got your back and together we become stronger and then we become the church that Jesus said not even the gates of Hades would come against. But it's not a one-man show. It's not for one person to do it all. Listen, you're called, 
You're gifted, not in an arrogant way, not in a prideful way. We humble ourselves to take a step of faith into what God puts in front of us. Well, how do I even know what first step to take? Pray. This is what I would challenge you to do. You pray for a week, 30 days, 60 days, whatever. And you begin to pray and ask God, God, show me. Just give me opportunity just to step into something that you have for me, God. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to begin to see things in front of you that, that God puts there and that you're going to go, this is what my hand finds to do right now. This is what he's put in front of me right now. So what do I do? I step. It's realizing that. It's knowing that. It's, it's realizing that if I'll step, he'll reveal. We see that in this text. We see that in the scripture. Where do we first read about Stephen and Philip? We first read about Stephen and Philip. They're going to wait tables. But then we see that God has such a bigger purpose for them. I want you to see this because I want you to see the full picture of what's happening. Remember, Jesus said that there were going to be witnesses who go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, when we read and understand more about Stephen and Philip, who were both um, part of the seven that were there to wait tables, what we do is we begin to see that, that Luke has recorded their story for a very specific purpose. The very specific purpose is that their story shows us how the mission went from just in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and how it's still going today. Their, their purpose was bigger. They, 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 it's showing that Luke did not record things just to record them. Luke was very intentional. He was probably a little OCD about the things he wrote, which was good. He was writing scripture. You don't want somebody to go, oh, that sounds good. You know, he recorded it in truth. He, he researched it. He dove into it. He recorded it from firsthand accounts. So much so that today, archaeologists, a lot of times will use the book of Acts to find places, find cities. And many times what will happen is you'll see this on the news. They're like, well, we looked for this city and it wasn't there. So that can't be true. And five years later, like, oh, we found it. Because he, he was meticulous. He, he wrote that way. And so what I want you to see is he put them in there for a reason. He's showing the gospel going forward. Specifically with Stephen, once you go into seven, they've challenged him on this. They said, you're blaspheming against the two most precious things to our culture and our religion, the temple and the law. Then they basically say, what do you have to say for yourself? He goes all the way back and he begins with you know, preaching from the very beginning with Abraham going all the way through. And he shows them, and this is, this is cool, y'all, the four accounts that he uses to show them leading up to Jesus were all four accounts in which God was not confined or limited to a place or a certain location. What was he saying? He's saying, look, you're all after me because I'm saying that Jesus is greater than the temple. You're worried about this temple being torn down. But for generations and generations and centuries, we've been serving a living God that is not confined to a building who is everywhere and working through his people. He said, what I'm preaching to you and teaching to you is not something that you shouldn't already realize. He preached such a good message that they stoned him to death. Literally, threw rocks on him until he dies. It could have had something to do with him saying something to the effect of you killed the son of glory. Putting it on them, right? And so we see though through Stephen, this persecution comes. Again, Satan begins to try to squash the church from the outside as they persecute Stephen. But if you go to Acts chapter 8, and you can go back and read these, read, read on through, man. It's incredible when you see this picture all tying together and why Luke was writing what he wrote. You go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What, what's he telling us in this? He's saying, look, when Stephen was stoned, there was this persecution that broke out. There was this guy named Saul who later became Paul, who we read about, who wrote the majority of the books in the Old or in the New Testament. He wrote all these books. He got converted. And so he's going around. He's kind of leading this persecution, a big part of this persecution. This persecution breaks out. And, and we see that the church is scattered. But who did it say didn't scatter? 
the apostles. So who was going out? And in Acts 8, 4, it says those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So who was preaching the word? Who was carrying the word? The word preached, it doesn't, our mind goes straight to this, where there's somebody standing up. Basically, it means they were sharing the good news of Christ. So it wasn't where they had a microphone. They didn't have, and so they weren't standing where it was a big crowd. They were going wherever they went. They would get in a conversation. They say, here, have you heard this? Have you know this? Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. So they were just going and sharing wherever they were scattered. Who didn't go? The apostles. Who was it then? The church. The body. I read a quote somebody wrote about that verse and they said these were amateur missionaries. I like that. I don't think that's a put down at all. What that tells me is it's not about professional people going out and sharing the good news of Jesus. It's about everyone who has been with Jesus going and sharing about the good news of Jesus. It's pretty incredible. So we go on. When, when we read specifically then about Philip, Philip shares the gospel in Samaria. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. But Philip, as he's, he's going, passing through, he shares the gospel. They come to faith. They're baptized. The apostles uh, send Peter um, and John. They come in and they begin to pray. They lay hands on them, showing that they embraced them. They're willing to lay hands on them. As they pray for them, the Holy Spirit comes to them. Peter realizes in that moment that the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit just the same as they had in Jerusalem. And now they realize that the Samaritans have been brought into the church. Guys, this is huge. Why? Because now we know that they went through Judea. They went to Samaria. We see that it's going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. Paul, who was there at the stoning of Stephen, that was a huge huge event in his salvation. God used that to open his eyes to begin to see. Paul then goes and he begins to carry it to the rest of the world. And so Luke is writing this very intentionally. He's wanting you to see how the mission Jesus gives in 1.8 is beginning to happen through these people. People, Philip and Stephen, they were not apostles. There was nothing special about they were just believers in Christ they were believers who were filled with the God of greater things who were willing to step into what God wants them to do why did you think that when Stephen's being stoned he says unto you I commit my spirit speaking to Jesus Jesus is standing most people say he stood because he was advocating for Stephen and welcoming Stephen to the kingdom to him to himself and so as Stephen's being stoned do you think he had a regret no he asked that they would the Lord would forgive him forgive those who were stoning him he didn't serve God he didn't serve Jesus out of guilt out of his burden because I just got to do it he did it because of what God was doing in his heart and that's got to be our motivation too if that's not there we we need to Pray, just be with God. Let God begin to stir your heart, not just to come in and wear a blue shirt, a yellow shirt, orange shirt, but what's God calling me to? God, show me, show me what's in front of me, what my hands find to do. And God, I'm going to make room. I'm going to make room in my heart. I'm going to make room so that you can move in me. I'm going to make room in my life. God, here's a blank check with my life. You write it for whatever you want to write it for. And then God, I'm going to walk. And he's going to walk with you one step at a time. Some steps may be bigger than others. Some steps are going to be small and you're going to want to get impatient. But the thing I'm telling you is if you'll come to a place of realizing that God desires to use me and the gifting he's placed in me to finish carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning in Statesboro all the way. I looked it up the other day. The furthest point I could find of an unreached people group was in Indonesia. From Statesboro all the way to Indonesia. I don't know what it's like there. But I know that God's calling us to go. God's calling us to share that as we scatter from this place, this is not the point. But as we scatter, we tell people about Jesus wherever we go. But I'm scared to do that. The Spirit will give you boldness. Step in faith. 
I don't know how to do that. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life. They're going to have questions you probably can't answer. You know what you say? I don't know. I just know what Jesus did in my life. I don't know the answer to your question, but I'll find out. Why don't we go get coffee sometime? Bam! Got them. Why do we do it? To put a notch in our belt? No, because we love with the love of Christ. We got a step, guys. It's just taking a step. I'm going to make room in my heart. I'm going to make room in my life. I'm giving this check. God, Just I'm writing my, here it is, God. What do you want to do? And I step. So today I just want to close out. I just want to pray for us. And a prayer I've been praying for a while that God would stir our hearts to step into what God wants us as the church to embrace. It's not burdensome. When God is using you, there's nothing else like it. So I don't want we stand. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you that we get to be a part of your plan. I'm thankful that your grace, Lord, is sufficient for us. I'm thankful, God, that you do for us what we cannot do. You do in us what we cannot do. and You do through us what we cannot do, God. That your grace is sufficient in every way. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be stirred. That your word would stir us. That we would see how you used flawed people to do greater things, God. And because of our love for you, Lord, we would step into that. God, give us wisdom, just like in Acts 6. Give us wisdom as to how the gifts are to work together. God, put each piece in place. We know that's what you do. And God, let us be a church that, the church, Lord, your church, that is seen in the fullness of Christ. Lord, I, I thank you for what you're doing. And, and God, um, I just pray that even, God, all of us, we, myself included, Lord, we'd be able to give you this blank check that you write on it what it is you want to write with our lives, not anything other than us giving you this blank paper and you writing what you want to write with our lives, Lord. We love you, God, and praise you for who you are what you've done in Jesus name.